It does freak me out when I try and do that. I haven't done that exercise, and I'd, li I'd like to. But when I think about my own kids and what it's what the future's going to be like for them, to be honest, it makes me think less long term because because <laughs> it's so frightening. And I, makes you want to put, I do that put a Pink Floyd record on and just take take lots of drugs and make everything very very small, <laughs> small, and, and get very comfortably numb exactly. while you're at it. <laughs> Welcome to Sustainababble 182. Welcome yourself, old two, Sustainababble 182, and I can now put my headphone back into my left ear hole uh, so that you do not agitate my upset ear hole with your shouting. Yes, very good. We are your friendly little weekly environmental podcast, ain't we all? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. All about people and the planet and why. And why all, despite everything being noise, we can still take a bit of time to have a bit of a chuckle. And a bit of a think, yes? Correct. And about what and to whom are we going to chuckly think this week? Well, we have decided that it's about time. No, we've decided it's about time. Very that good. It's about time. I was quite it's, pleased with that. We're talking about yeah. time. We're talking about the long term. We're talking about not just like what's happening in half an hour or next week or even next year, but... For future generations, for 70,000 generations into the future, we are going to talk to a very, very clever and wise and good value person called Roman Krasnarek, who is a public philosopher and an author, and he's just written a book called The Good Ancestor, and it's all about this pressing need we have to think in the long term, both for climate reasons, but for all sorts of reasons about making sure that we survive the next hundred years as a species. Yeah, proper interesting chat this. One of them things, you remember when we talked to that Jonathan Rowson uh, back before Christmas and uh, some of the stuff and you have these conversations and you start to feel your tiny little brain going a bit big and it mm. hurts. I mean, we were, talking to a, we were talking to a chess grandmaster after oh. two hours sleep after the election so that's my, true yeah, I'm, I'm just glad we got through that to be honest um, but yeah but Roman has similarly large brain and is a similarly nice chap and we talked about all sorts of stuff like essentially this is a chat about how to give a shit so how to give a shit about uh, not just thing, not just what you're going to have for breakfast but like people who are not yet born people who are going to be on the real sharp end of environmental stuff how to do that it's a chat about how other cultures can do that and some of them have very rude names and we're going to talk a bit about they that don't, they don't have rude names they just have names that unfortunately sound a little bit like rude names that's yes. all <laughs> and it's a chat about why Ol's brain may be slightly slopier <laughs> than you might be expecting I don't think it's a surprise to anyone to know that my brain is quite slopey. <laughs> uh, right, do your disclaimer. Let's get on with it. Good, yes. So, usual disclaimer. Uh, I work for an environment charity, but these are very much my own views. So, if you've got a problem with anything I say, uh, don't take it up with the people for whom I work. Take it up with me. And similarly, if Dave or Roman offends you, 
Well, just do one. There's there's literally nothing you can do about it, but please don't um, have a go at the people who pay my wage. And the first thing we asked Roman was about who the hell he thinks he's got on the front of his book. How did you get the edge to give you an endorsement for your book? And then, relatedly, why did you get the edge to give you an endorsement for your book? That's my question. Two very wise questions. <laughs> um, I didn't actually plan to get the edge to give an endorsement for my book. It came about through a kind of fluke. In fact, I'd given the manuscript of the book to the musician and music producer Brian Eno to oh, have a yes. look at because he's not only a godlike musical guru but is really interested in long-term thinking which is the subject of this new book the good ancestor um he in fact invented the phrase the long now you know so in contrast to the idea of the short now that we're living in a now of seconds and minutes and hours he thinks we needed to live in a long now of decades and centuries and millennia and as he was reading the book and giving critical comments on it he got back to me and said hey my mate the edge is really interested in future generations and what's going to happen to the planet and ai and all that kind of stuff would you mind if he looked at it and of course i'm not going to deny a massive rock star a copy of my manuscript so um (laughs) off it went to the edge and he liked it very much so um that's how the edge ended up on there. And in a way, that's why I put it on the front because actually he does really care about these issues. And part of, of course, the point is to make that message as wide as possible that, you know, thinking about the long-term and future generations and the planet isn't just about something for policy wonks in Friends of the Earth or wherever it happens to be. I'm tempted to, to make a terrible joke about how if he's interested in long-term generations, then he never is going to find what he's looking for. But I won't, I won't yes. make that joke. Yeah, that, no, don't awful. make that joke. Don't make that. That would just be, be beneath me to make that joke. I've got feet unlike squid, a wildebeest, and nobody knows what I'm on about. So tell us a little bit about your your sort of main interests then you're 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 all as far as i can tell you are mad keen on empathy uh and <laughs> for the rest and- the rest of us don't give a shit but you you really <laughs> yeah, I, love it. I love empathy there's nothing else i ever think about <laughs> so why why i mean i think we all think we know what empathy is but what do you think it is and why is it important and why more importantly why is it important for changing the world and getting us out of some of the pickles in which we find ourselves. Yeah, I mean, empathy is not a subject that I cared about when I was growing up or as a teenager or whatever, or in my 20s. It didn't even occur to me that that word was really meaningful or important. But I think in the 1990s, I, I went off to Guatemala and I did uh, human rights work with indigenous people um, during Guatemala's civil war and working with refugees. And I, I started realizing that their way of looking at the world was so different from mine. And if I was going to do anything useful for their lives and my work with them, that I needed to try and understand their points of view. And then once that idea gets into your head, the importance of seeing someone else's perspective, you recognize its importance everywhere, not just in you know, how we relate to people in developing countries, but even in an everyday relationship. Like if you're arguing with your partner or husband, wife or whatever, sometimes you just think, oh God, I wish they could see things from my point of view. I wish they could understand where I'm coming from. Well, what are you asking for? Empathy, right? You want them to step into your shoes 
if only for a moment. And I started seeing that this is something that actually knits the world together. It's how or part of how we overcome you know, uh, inequalities uh, in terms of class or race or gender, whatever it is, it's trying to make that connection across social divides. And so I've, I've written books about it. I even started an empathy museum, which travels around the world and gives people, uh, I'm not joking. It's actually, I've one, seen it. I've seen the clips of it. Yeah, uh, right, well, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, one of the exhibits is called a mile in my shoes and That's it's like a gigantic shoe box, uh, which has been in many countries and you walk inside and you can literally slip on a pair of loafers belonging to a guy who's been in Wandsworth prison for 14 years or a Syrian refugee or a Brazilian sex worker and, and actually walk a mile in their very shoes while listening to an audio narrative of them talking about their life. You know, you need to think about the people who are literally standing next to you every day. You know, someone might have a bit of a face on, but maybe they're going through something. If I can just take a moment... Um, and and it's very intimate. Uh, it's very powerful. It's a bit kind of Mr. Ben. You're inside somebody's skin, inside their costume. Um, but it is one of those ways of understanding someone else's perspective. The problem with it, though, um, much as I love the Empathy Museum, it's run by a brilliant artist called Claire Patey. It's re- you can step into the shoes of people who are around today, but how do you step into the shoes of future people, the unborn generations of tomorrow? Now, that's a much tougher ask because you can't slip on their shoes or have a chat with them, you know, over a beer. I mean, you can get a book about it. Oh, yeah, you, you, you can get a book about it from a, from a, from a bookshop or a, or a library. But you can't learn about it. No. Just this empathy thing, because I think I know what you mean. I think I know what you mean. But I'm trying to think about uh, it and the planet, right? Because I think one of the things you have argued is if we're going to really do something about the environment, we need to be more empathetic. Uh, what do you mean by that? So if you open a psychology textbook, it will give you two different definitions of empathy. One of them is what's called affective empathy. That's empathy as a shared or mirrored emotional response. So, you know, you look at the anguish on a child's face and if you too feel that anguish, that's affective empathy. If you have a different emotional response, like you think, oh, the poor little thing, you feel sorry for them, that's what psychologists tend to call sympathy. It's an emotional response, but one that isn't shared. And then if you flip over the page in the psychology textbook, you will see another definition of empathy, another type. It's what's called cognitive empathy or perspective-taking empathy. And that's about really trying to imagine what is it like to be someone with a different point of view, um, different experiences of life and, and, and the world. Um, it's sort of like, you know, when you walk past someone who's selling a, a copy of, a, uh, you know, the big issue or someone homeless living on the street, rather than just tossing them a coin and feeling sorry for them, it's about trying to imagine, well, what's it like to sleep out rough on a cold winter's night? Or what's it like to have someone walk past you without looking you in the eye? That's all about cognitive or perspective taking empathy. And that's the kind that I've really focused a lot of my work on. And I think it is central to um, ecological movements and environmental campaigning more broadly, partly because we need to under step into the shoes of people who are being hit, for example, by the impacts of climate change today, whether it's people in, um, you know, in the global north or in the global south. But it's also about you know, are we able to make an empathic connection with the living world? And that's uh, a tougher call, um, but something that a lot of people started trying to think about and write about and um, trying to enable us to develop a kind of interdependence with the living world via our cognitive capacity for empathizing. So your book, um, which 
I, I confess I haven't read all of. That's all uh, right. It was it was Dave's job to read uh, to read it in front of, before this episode. Did that. But I did start reading it last night. I had a bit of time. I thought I will. I'm going to start reading this. You had some beers, and didn't I you? I had a couple of cans of quite strong <laughs> ale, and the combination of your book and the ale made Crikey. me really. Oh, I, was just, I was getting some yeah, very was, funny text messages off of you last it, night. I really no, was. It, was, I, it was exhilarating because like, it's. It, <laughs> I'm not trying to be stupid about this, but like it's it's big stuff, right? And it's and it's but it's also it is mind expanding and um, and very hopeful and and I think it's an extraordinary concept. This idea that actually, well, as what's the quote that that you begin with is the idea that we uh, our greatest uh, our greatest kind of job as humans is to be good ancestors. Is that right? Yeah, that's the kind of thing. Yeah, the book's called "The Good Ancestor: How to Think Long Term in a Short Term World," and that phrase, "The Good Ancestors," from this um, immunologist Jonas Salk, who discovered the polio vaccine in 1955, and he thought that the great question really of our time is how are we going to be good ancestors? And it's yeah, and it was it, it was amazing, and I enjoyed lots of it, um, but it did. Get me thinking, and you address this in a bit, but it got it got us all thinking. I think we're not very good at that. Like we're just we're really, really good at short term thinking. I, I certainly, <laughs> I'm, I'm am. not even world class uh, at that. I'll level with you. I, <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> but I think I'm better at short term thinking and long term thinking. And and clearly, when you consider how we're acting in terms of climate change or inequality or biodiversity loss or anything like that. They're classic examples of what happens when at a species level, at a population level, we, we prioritise short-term or even, thinking. Or even in so, our lives just more generally, right? Like, you know, like doing, you know, putting aside a bit of money today so that we'll have some money tomorrow. Who of us does enough of that kind of thing, right? I don't sure, know. sure. Yeah. Um, so do, does that mean that we're just better at short-term thinking? Are we Are we just set up to be short-term thinkers more than we are long-term thinkers? Well, the way I look at it is that there is this constant tug of war going on in our brains and also in our society between the drivers of short-termism and the drivers of long-termism. So, you know, do we party today or save for our pensions for tomorrow? Do we upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? And the extraordinary thing about the human mind is that we are able to shift between the short and long-term with incredible dexterity. You know, one moment you can be responding to a text and the next you can be thinking about putting away money for your mortgage or you know writing a song list for your own funeral we are masters of the temporal pirouette we can shift across Mm. time horizons but the thing is we are much better at short-term thinking i mean we've got a kind of bias towards it and most of our social and economic political institutions are designed to bring out that short-term side so if you look inside the brain We do have this ancient part of the brain that we share with rats and other mammals, which is what I call the marshmallow brain. It's the bit that focuses on immediate rewards and instant gratification. So you probably know that famous marshmallow test from the 1960s where kids were giving a marshmallow put in front of them. If they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow and the majority of the kids did take the marshmallow. But that is not the whole story of who we are because we also have what I think of as the acorn brain alongside our marshmallow brain. And that's the part of our brain above our eyes, the front of our head in the in, in the uh, frontal lobe, or particularly a bit called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, if you really want to know. And, and that's gonna, a new I'm part gonna of the brain. I'm just going to play the appropriate music for that. So Very good. The, the marshmallow brain is about 80 million years old. The, the acorn brain is only about 
two million years old, which is kind of new in terms of uh, evolutionary psychology and neuro- neuroscience. Um, but and is this, is this like physiologically, is that why Neanderthals had the kind of the flat, uh, the, not the, the sort of sloping forehead and then... Exactly. So, uh, right. So, sapiens get the bigger forehead. Yeah. Right? If you and look at physically and grown and cats, that's exactly it. So, if you look at the, the brains of hominids over the last two million years, basically our foreheads have gone from being at an angle to going up vertical. Um, and during that time, those couple of million years, the size of our brain doubled, but it it wasn't distributed proportionally around our whole brain. It was like right at the front above our eyes. And that's the where the executive functions are. That's where the long-term thinking and planning happens. And we're basically much better at it than most other creatures. So a chimpanzee, right, will do a bit of planning. So they might get a stick, strip off the leaves to make a tool to stick into a termite hole, but they'll never make a dozen of these tools and put them aside for next week. But that is exactly the kind of thing that a human being will do, right? That's exactly why we will save for our mortgages or our kids' education. You know, it's that acorn brain in action. That's how we built the Great Wall of China and voyaged into space. Oh, $20. I wanted a peanut. $20 can buy many peanuts. Explain how. Money can be exchanged for goods and services. I really believe that the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are are fundamental. And we hear a lot about how, look, we're not just individualistic creatures. We're also cooperative creatures. Rutger Bregman's written a good book about this recently, Humankind. But it's not just that we're me and we. We're also short and long. And so once we recognize we've got these acorn brains and we have this ability to become part-time residents of the future in a way, then we can start thinking, okay, how the hell do we switch this thing on? And is there something about, because I was going into this, I guess, a bit unsure whether or not I think we can do that. And your book is all about kind of how we do that. But is there something particularly about Western civilization, about us here, that makes us think that we can't do that? Because we're surrounded by consumption and social media and all that sort of stuff. Because other cultures seem to be, a, I don't know, is it, am I just being really glib? Are other cultures better at this stuff than us? Or is that a stupid thing to say? <laughs> I mean, we all pretty much share the same brains. Um, but the, que- the point is, though, that I think different cultures do have different attitudes to how we think about time and our relationship with future and past generations. So, you know, in Native American culture, particularly amongst the Iroquois um, and the Lakota peoples, there's this idea of seventh generation decision making. So you make community decisions based on its impact seven generations ahead. So let's say 150, 200 years. Or in, and that kind of idea has been around for at least two centuries in indigenous North American culture. Or you can go over to New Zealand, where in Maori culture, there's this concept of whakapapa. Language, Timothy. Which sounds a bit rude, but it's spelled <laughs> with a... Sorry, what? Excuse me, yeah. sorry. <laughs> whakapapa is spelled with a WH, but in Maori, WH is, print, is uh, an, uh, the letter F. Sounds like an F. Anyway, whakapapa mm. um, is their word for um, genealogy or lineage. And it's the idea that we are all in a great chain of being stretching far into the past and long into the future. Um, this is your whakapapa, your, your your lineage. So we're all connected. And, and I've spoken to Maori uh, activists who said, look, when I'm giving a, a public talk or something, I feel it's not just me here. I mean, I'm here in the room with the people of the present and the past and the future. And we absolutely tend not to think like this in Western culture, but other cultures do. So I think there's a question of, you know, how or can we really even make that leap or or stretch our brains to encompass those future generations in the way that we're making our decisions in everyday life or in politics or economics? 
So if we don't have, if we don't, we here in the in the West and in you know iPhone obsessed and emoji driven uh, blighty, if we don't have the capacity to draw on that sort of cultural um, language, I suppose, of of, of long term thinking. Are there are there techniques and tricks and little things that we could be doing to sort of switch our own brains into thinking long term by default? Or is it is it a bigger question than that? No, I think that there are things that we can do. I mean, in a, I mean, I remember going on this brilliant workshop once um, run by uh, an organisation called the Long Time Project, um, and what they do is they get you to sort of stand in a field um, and to close your eyes and imagine a, a young person from your life, someone that you care about, like a child or a nephew or niece or something like that. And then you try you picture their face, and then with your eyes shut, they ask you to step forward, take a step forward, and imagine them 30 years in the future and what's going on in their life and their joys and struggles and what's happening in the world around them. And then you take a third step, and it's this young person's 90th birthday. And you picture what's going on on their birthday, their loved ones all around them, what they now look like, what's going on in the window outside, and then you have to do this thought experiment where you imagine this 90-year-old um, about to make their birthday speech. And just when they're about to, they look over on the mantelpiece and see a, a photograph of you, their, 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 their relative, their long-dead relative. And they decide to tell the gathered room about what legacy you left them and what um, you taught them about life. And certainly when I did that experiment, um, which is a way, in a way, of trying to touch this idea of fuck a pup or, or seventh generation thinking. I was imagining my then ten year old daughter being ninety years old, and thinking about what was going on in the real world around her was amazing. And the kind of revelation that I had in that case, and it can be quite confronting doing that, particularly if you've got yeah. like an apocalyptic view of the well, future. Uh, yeah, I'm never with you. I'm thinking ninety <laughs> yeah. years ahead in the future, and it's not going well. At the moment. Yeah, well, but I think I think it's really good though to try and connect with that. And I've done this uh, workshop myself and run it, and you know some people are in tears, but I think it's powerful. So anyway, what I recognise that my ninety-year-old daughter was not alone. She was part of a web of relationships, part of a community, part of the living world. You know what was the air that she was breathing and the food that she was eating. So those little thought experiments and recognizing that someone even just one or a couple of generations from you might be alive well into the 22nd century, it really starts making you connect with the future, I think, in a way that's often quite difficult, simply because we can't meet, you know, someone in the 22nd century very easily. They like you very much, but they are not the hell you're whales. I, I suppose they've told you that, huh? The hell they did. It does freak me out when I try and do that. I haven't done that exercise. And I'd, li- I'd like to, but when I think about my own kids and what it's what the future is going to be like for them, to be honest, it makes me think less long term because because <laughs> <laughs> it's so frightening. And I, makes you want to put, I do that put a Pink Floyd record on and just take take lots of drugs and make everything very very small, <laughs> small and, and yeah. get well, very I mean, comfortably just... numb exactly. while you're at it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, and that's to be honest, that's just the reality of having children makes me want to do that half the time as well. But <laughs> but it, but thinking about what life, you know, what we are, we we as a species and as a culture may be bequeathing their generation, like terrifies me definitely. And, and we've talked to people on this podcast before who have chosen to rule out having kids because of how they think the future is gonna gonna play. So 
do do you, in your experience do you find that it it motivates people to to act differently or does it does it scare people or or what how how do people change when they start thinking in those sorts of terms I think my experience and what I've noticed is that it does motivate people but you know sometimes you got to go to a dark place to feel motivated and I don't think we need to be afraid of that because you know, some people get motivated by hope and some by fear, and we're all very different, you know, and I think we need to embrace that. I'm not one of these people who thinks that you have to be hopeful all the time and always paint a, a rosy picture of the future as a way of getting people to do stuff. I think particularly those people in power, you know, political figures or business and so on, they're actually often more motivated by fear um, than by hope. Um, but I think what's really important here and what I try to do in this book, The Good Ancestor, is try and get to that idea of long-term thinking in lots of different ways. Now, for some people, an exercise like thinking about their legacy for the future and picturing their child when they're 90 years old is a way to get at it. For other people, are really into something different. Like, for example, I explore the idea of deep time. So recognizing that humankind is just an eye blink in the great cosmic story going back you know, four billion years to when life started on Earth and maybe going four or five billion years forward to the the death of our sun. And, you know, who are we to break the great chain of life that's been going on with our deadly technologies and, um, you know, environmental degradation? You know, because we've been doing it in just 200 years where we're, we're breaking down the living world, which has been evolving for, for millennia and, and longer. So who are we to do that? And some people really like that perspective of deep time. It's almost sort of calmer than trying to picture your child when they're 90 <laughs> years old. Under the sea, under the sea, darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Have you seen that animation of the deep sea? Have either of you seen this? Yes. Yeah, I, have, I haven't yeah. seen that. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. That? I'll send it to you afterwards. It's this thing, and this wonderful animation that starts on the surface of the sea, and then you just go down. It sort of keeps going down and down and down, and it shows you all the things that live there. And essentially, you're going down for about ten minutes. It's absolutely vast, and it's just showing you the scale of how deep the ocean is, and. I also saw this thing from Tim Urban, the guy from uh, Wait But Why, and he this graphic he's got that shows that every there's only been 500 generations of what you might call modern humans ever, you know, and and these things just but they they just make my brain go, you know, it's, it's kind right. Of, well, you're a really good example of someone who who that kind of stuff really works for them, yeah. right? And and I think if that stuff doesn't work for everyone. That stuff doesn't work for me as much as something a bit of more of a personal workshop kind of experience. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that's that's a really great point, though. Those kinds of examples can really, yeah, blow your mind, you know. Like, I, I, you know, those things do work for me a bit. I remember as a teenager and I went trekking in Nepal and I was at the top of a mountain and suddenly I could just see how ridiculously unimportant my own life was, both in sort of time <laughs> and space. Here are these millions of billions-year-old mountains and tiny me, I don't really matter. And that was a kind of revelation, that moment. It's shaped my whole life and everything I do. Me, it's making me think about, oh, when we talked to that Bruce Parry back in episode 87, who oh, yeah. uh, was yeah. who's done ayahuasca and was telling us all about that. And he was a very calm dude. And he was basically saying <laughs> that, like, that, that you know, psych uh, psychedelics and that sort of experience, make that's how you feel. 
right? And, and I, I guess maybe pharmacologically is is one, I don't know, like, but maybe it's having a similar sort of effect to turning off the bit of your brain that's thinking about the immediate short term and turning on the bit that's thinking about the long term. But um, yeah, so uh, should we all take drugs there? Yeah, that's a question. Uh, well, I mean, definitely there's a lot of evidence about drug taking and changing our temporal minds, you know, shifting us out of that short now into a longer now. But I don't think it's the only way you can do it. And in fact, I mean, I quite like to give those kind of psychedelic drugs to all the members of parliament in Britain, for example, and see oh God, whether it starts making them think long term. But that. I'm not sure that's going to be the best way. Don't get uptight with me, mate. Because if you do, I'll have to give you a dose of medicine. So why why do we focus on the short term so much? Uh, and I guess by that I mean both as individuals, but also institutionally. Like, what what are the reasons that we're doing this too much, and that we that we can't seem to lift our lift our eyes and focus on the longer term? It's partly because we are the inheritors of half a millennium of short-termism. I mean, ever since the the invention, I know, damn it. (laughs) I mean, ever since the invention of the mechanical clock in the 14th century, we've been speeding up time and making it shorter, bringing the future towards us faster. I mean, the first clocks, um, you know, really only had our hands. By 1700, they had minute hands. By 1800, they had second hands. And now there's algorithmic trading going on literally faster than a blink of an eye, one four hundredth of a, of a second. Um, so, you know, we've got that we're built in. We've got this kind of short term culture built into us. I mean, when you go and buy something online, you know, go somewhere like Amazon. I'm sure you two don't use something as horrific as Amazon. What's um, that? And What's you, Amazon? I definitely I never heard of I it. I definitely either. didn't no. use Amazon to get my partner a very late birthday present. <laughs> right. today. I, did, I did not do that and never would. Exactly. So there we've got the, the great big buy now button. But just imagine if instead of just having a buy now button, there was a, a little drop down menu that said, you know, buy in a week or buy in a year or borrow from a friend, you know, um, we would literally shop differently, but we're not given those options, right? So technology is driving us towards short-termism. I mean, so there's a whole, and you know, politicians are driven towards the short term by electoral cycles, by 24-7 news. Businesses are driven towards short-termism by literally their legal obligation to maximize shareholder values, all that kind of stuff. It's madness, right? But it's built into the system. So a lot of this is about redesigning what our political economic institutions look like, but also about having different kinds of goals, right? That's what donor economics is about, all the circular economy, all these kinds of things. If you change the goal that you're aiming at, then hopefully your institutions then can fit in with those different goals. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? So all the all the things you just described there sound to me an awful lot like the core tenets of capitalism. Like that it sounds it sounds like our our economic system, capitalism, is set up to gear short-termism. So is what you are saying get out there and smash capitalism. Get out there and smash it. I mean, I think the problem with the term capitalism is it just means different things to different people. You know, for some capitalism is about the operation of the market, you know, unfettered free market. For some, it's about private property ownership, and that's what the focus is. For others, it's about the self-interested pursuit of profit. So you can pick it apart in all sorts of different ways. It's definitely true that 
neoliberalism, that revival of free market thinking, you know, that's been going on for the last 30 or 40 years, which is the dominant economic paradigm, is kind of blind to the long term. It's very much about here and now. So, for example, all the deregulation of stock markets in the 80s and 90s that happened under um, neoliberalism have developed or given us an, an era of speculative capitalism full of insane booms and busts from the you know the 1987 crash dot com bubble 2008 and the next crash which is around the corner so in those ways i think that kind of definition of capitalism as it were that neoliberal idea is definitely driving us very much towards uh the short term so if we're going to deal with that well then you do have to start dismantling yes smash we prefer the word smash smash or you start grow i'd I'd rather like grow the alternative rather than smash the old one because i think that's how change really happens yeah quite right just a little bit of smashing though just like a maybe just push over you could do a little bit of smashing a bit of luddite you know you know breaking some windows of the securities you know of of the stock exchanges and mcdonald's and things like that i'm actually all right with that stuff as long as you don't really hurt (laughs) any people I, i don't have i don't think private property is that uh, sacred that it cannot be violated if there are you know unjust laws that need to be broken excellent we got that we got there in the end and the babble is obviously <laughs> did i very admit i wanted to in- smash capitalism all right <laughs> yes. okay let's smash it fine yes <laughs> right thank you you heard the man you could have just said yes <laughs> So climate change, yeah. So Ol and I have been banging on about climate change, professionally and non-professionally, for a very long time, right? And I've been doing it for long enough, I guess Ol has too, when the only reasons that people were given for caring about climate change were exactly the sort of reasons that you are talking about. So all the sort of climate campaigns were like, we need to care about future generations, we need to care about other people in other places, we need to care about the polar bear, right? None of which I am. I am not a polar bear. Um, But then kind of increasingly campaigns have changed to be much more about, no, this is here and it's happening now. And of course it is happening now, like Australia on fire and heat waves in Pakistan and all that sort of stuff. So are we running the risk in sort of climate campaigning that's saying it is a problem now of undermining the point that actually it's much more of a problem for people in other places and polar bears and people who aren't born yet? That's a really good question. I've got a feeling I haven't thought about this hard enough. Like if I was going into brief uh, um, environmental organisations, exactly what I'd say to them. But let me tell you broadly how I <laughs> I think about it. Um I really believe that we need to inject long-term values into society um, and not just try and look at things in the present or try and think about the immediate quick wins and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, since after the end of the Second World War was the rise of um, development thinking and caring about people in other countries, humanitarian aid and all that kind of stuff. And it's had enormous effects for all its problems. And I think in the same way, we need to try and send our minds forward in time and get our values to not just have empathy across space, but empathy through time as well. And you find 
this there's i think there's a kind of a time rebel movement emerging for intergenerational justice more and more organizations are explicitly talking about let's care about future generations so i know the catholic church for example um in the pope's last encyclical called la dato si praise be he talks about intergenerational solidarity and intergenerational justice now i'm not saying the catholic church in practice is doing that because i'm sure the vatican bank is probably still investing in fossil fuels um, and they haven't divested yet well they're not going to tell us anyway because they keep it all secret right but i think that idea of trying to extend our sense of justice forward is really fundamental and we need to not be afraid of doing that talking about long-term values on the other hand i do think about bringing the issues into the present really matters but the way i think about that is to recognize that if you're interested in long-term thinking one of the tricks of doing it is don't think about time think about place because if you think about the way that how does nature really work how do species in nature survive for the long term whether it's a bear or a barn owl right they're not thinking um you know 10,000 generations ahead you know i mean what is what is success for a species it's to keep your you know your next generation alive for for those 10,000 uh, generations going forward but the way you do it is not by thinking about time it's by care, taking care of the place that will take care of your offspring. In other words, don't foul your nest. Look mm. after the environment in which you are embedded as a species. And this is what human beings are absolutely hopeless at doing. That's why we use 1.6 uh, Earths per year, why we blow ourselves over planetary boundaries or however you want to measure these things. We are fouling the nest. And if we're going to survive for the long term, we need to be able to... Um, live within the biocapacity of the one and only planet we know that sustains life and not be like Elon Musk and say, hey, let's just jet off to Mars and solve our problems that way. Um, this is the only place that we know. And so if you're going to do that, to actually answer your question now, Dave, is you need to care about place as well as time. That's about falling in love with a, a river or a meadow or planting that acorn in, in, in the ground. And um, that stuff is about recognizing the now as well as recognizing the then which i guess takes us back to the tyranny of technology and the tyranny of you know 24 hours news cycle and all the rest of it so you, you are constantly and podcasts bloody podcasts in your ear the whole time uh, you are constantly given a reason to not go out and spend time in your place and get to know the changes in seasons and it's you know it's one of the the few sort of benefits if you like that's come out of the lockdown period is that people have actually observed all of spring and how it changes the place around them and a lot of people feel more fondly about their local area than they ever have done before but how how do we how do we build that time that is needed to appreciate that space in order to appreciate the longer term thinking how can we do it well, I think we need to invent new kinds of ritual. That's one way to start. I mean, of course, you could just not just smash capitalism, but smash your phone. And that's a good start. I you know, we know so. that. Right, Dave, you go first. You now, do yours first, <laughs> Dave. And then... 
In fact, I, I used to be part of this um, weird Sunday afternoon tea club called Higher Tea, and we used to do these weird rituals every week. And the, when it was my turn, I bought a whole load of secondhand clocks and watches from um, local charity shops where I live in Oxford on Carley Road, and I gave everybody hammers, and we destroyed time, and we smashed them to pieces. Um, that sounds a lot of fun. Still getting older, though. It, it, Still getting older, though, yeah, it, afraid. <laughs> <laughs> um, But that's not the only way to do it. So I do like rituals. So, you know, the idea of like once a month, go and visit an ancient tree, go to a churchyard and find a yew tree that's a thousand years old and sit underneath it and don't take a selfie in front of it. But do do what the great Vietnamese Zen monk Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, don't just do something, sit there. Um, try and get in touch with Amazing. deep time that way. Or, you know, every summer, uh, my partner and our kids, we go to Lyme Regis on the Dorset coast and we look for fossils. And when you're holding a 195 million old year old belamite or ammonite, you know, weird squid-like creature in your hand, that's a bit of that getting in touch with deep time you were talking about earlier, uh, Dave. So I think we can, you know, start training ourselves really to connect with the living world in that in that way. And I think that is a good start. But of course, there's all sorts of other things we can do. It's quite hard to grasp deep, deep time because it's an elusive thing. You know, for some people, sit and watch a sci-fi film that takes your mind forward 10,000 years might open your mind as much as going to visit an ancient oak or yew tree. What I'm talking about in this book is, you know, to be a good ancestor is about leaving a legacy for the universal strangers of the future. It's about leaving a transcendent sense of legacy for people who are completely unrelated to you. I mean, think about it. Look, there are 7.7 billion people alive today. Now, if you go back 50,000 years, an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died. But if you go forward 50,000 years, assuming this century's birth rate remains constant, an estimated 7 trillion people will be born. And they far <laughs> outweigh everyone alive today. It's pretty mind-blowing. I find that mind-blowing. And it makes me think, okay, right, there are a lot of people to leave a legacy for. There are a lot of people in the future. And those future people, they have no votes, they have no power at the ballot box or in the marketplace. And we need to try and give them a voice in today's world. And that's what this is all about for me. So recognizing that you're not going to be around forever and that we could leave a legacy for those seven trillion people in the future, let's say, um, is I, I find quite a motivating force. Well then, Dave. Well then, how's your how's your head after that? Uh, vertical, thank you. Mm. Yes. Um, no, fine. I mean, I do find some of this like I honestly find the the teeny weeny insignificance of people. I find it simultaneously massively awe inspiring. It's like when you stand on the side of a cliff and you just see the sea and you see the birds and you see nature and you go, Jesus Christ, I could be swept off and I'm small. Um, but I also find <laughs> it like it just it's just too massive. It's too massive a thought. I guess, of course, it's too massive, yeah. you know. Um, but anything we can do, any moments, I reckon, of just bearing in mind that we are just little wisps, but we're messing up lots of other wisps, is probably a useful thing to do, don't you think? 
Yeah, definitely. It was. I really, really recommend that people read this book when it when it comes yes, out. It's um, cracking. It's. I sort of made a joke about it in the interview about you know getting drunk and reading about time and stuff, but it is it is really really mind expanding, and um, yeah, it just talks about things that obviously make sense when someone explains it to you, but I'd never thought about before. Like all of our technologies and all of our short termism had been sort of containable by the planet until about 200 years ago but we we could make stupid decisions and design things with unintended consequences and it was kind of bad in some senses but on a sort of species level our impact wasn't that great until 200 years ago when it started becoming that great and now those same mistakes that we've always made have got really really profound consequences and we've got to unmake them and that sort of stuff it's all it's all very very good so do go out do out, go out and buy it and um and read it and tell us what you think tell roman what you think uh so uh thank you very much for listening oh we should have said if you enjoyed that go and listen to our episode number 77 when we have a chat with kate rayworth uh not just similarly sort of mind expanding stuff but uh, also roman's partner so you know they sit around all day talking about that kind of thing Uh, so you can get in touch with us you can tell us what you thought of the show Uh, did you like it Uh, did it make you think all of that sort of stuff we are on the email at hello at sustainababble.fish you can find us on the twitter at the babble wagon or we're on the facebook if you just search for sustainababble and uh, if you are so moved you could dip into your pocket chuck a couple of quid at your dear babble we are on patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sustainababble where you can bung in the price of a pint to help us keep this show on the road if you like very good uh do tell your friends about the podcast it is the best way that we get new people listening to it um so yeah shout about it tweet furiously about it all the rest of it but also if you feel so inclined give us a five star review on itunes or something like it because it all helps Thank you, as always, to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts, ends and intertwinkles this podcast. And to the wonderful Arthur Stovall for the logo, What Adorns It. And if you want to have the logo, What Adorns It, on your person, as I am demonstrating to all right now with my Sustainababble t-shirt on, you can purchase one um, at the website, which is wobblywobblywobbly.sustainababble.fish. Trayvon, right. That's about it, I think, isn't it? Yes, I yeah, very think good. It is, okay. yes. All right, well, let's let's go and have a empathetic time uh, and think deep thoughts about our 90-year-old selves cuddling our grandchildren and their 90-year-old selves, unyet born. Oh, God, my brain's gone. I need a more vertical <laughs> forehead. And remember, it is all right to smash capitalism a bit. So let's go out there and smash it a bit before breakfast. Yes. (laughs) Bye. Bye. It's like sniggering at that. Like school was like I'm sniggering at an indigenous concept about intergenerational responsibility. I'm not sure I'm a good enough human. (laughs) 